it's probably not really a bailout in the classic sense if you're just rescuing depositors who had nothing to do with the risks that SVB was taking. The management at SVB and the equity holders at SVB are not being rescued. You are listening to Investorama, your guide to the future of investing without the hype. In each episode, reformed investment banker and marketer George Aliferis and his guests take a deep dive into a key topic that shapes our financial future. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Investorama podcast. I have the pleasure to talk to Alex Johnson, who many people in fintech know from the Fintech Takes podcast and newsletter. Alex's experience is in credit and also in marketing and research in the fintech space. And today we're going to talk about something that would be a very boring topic maybe a few months ago, but now it's suddenly become a very hot topic. Since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank deposits, bank accounts and other stuff. So Alex, welcome. Glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. Just for the record, we're recording this on the 16th of March and there's been the collapse of SVB, there's now USDC, there's Credit Suisse that's uh, very much in the news. So this is where we stand. But first, before we go into all that, I'd like to get to know you a little bit better. So if you could just give us a bit more about your background and how you come to where you're at at the moment. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I have worked in and around financial services for the last 15 plus years, and it's been a variety of different roles in market research, marketing, sometimes sort of working slightly outside the industry and studying it from a market research perspective, sometimes working inside the industry. Uh, I've worked for very large sort of legacy financial technology companies like uh, FICO, the maker of the credit score. Uh, but also kind of very small you know, fintech startup companies to, that no one's ever really heard of. So I've been around lots of different corners of the fintech space. And, you know, three years ago, decided to start writing about the space just to really kind of help me keep up with it more than anything else. And so I started uh, Fintech Takes, which is the newsletter that I write. Started as just a side project that uh, I did for fun and eventually sort of evolved into something that um, had gotten enough traction that made sense to do it full time. So I've been writing the newsletter and, as you said, doing the podcast associated with the newsletter full time since you know last year. And really, the newsletter is just a way for me to try to process everything that's happening in the space and sort of provide my view into you know, different ways I think fintech and financial services might evolve. Yeah, when we come to your newsletter, there's also an interesting selection, an excellent curation of newsletters on the topic. And as I followed, and obviously I'm a fan of uh, fintech takes, I also want to understand, so you obviously come from a traditional background and now, well, you, we can say you're a creator. I think the fintech takes has involved and now what I really, really enjoy, and I receive so many newsletters, right? Is yeah. how it's a mix of analytics and humor as well so it, it really has its own style i was wondering about your evolution and how much you know thought and effort you put into that yeah i mean i think that you know like anything it takes a little while to figure out like what your voice is right and you know when i started the newsletter you know more than three years ago there weren't a ton of like fintech newsletters substack at the time was relatively new People were just starting to sort of start newsletters either as side projects or as full-time businesses. You know, today there are, as you say, way more newsletters out there in fintech and really just everywhere. And I think it's amazing because it really gives people uh, an opportunity to share their perspective and their voice. But, you know, the hard part, and I, I talk to a lot of people who start newsletters or podcasts or whatever that are focused on fintech is can take a little while to figure out 
what is it that you have to say? What is your sort of perspective on these topics? Because everyone sort of comes at it from a different perspective, right? I have always been sort of a, a market researcher at heart. And so, you know, my my analysis in my newsletter is really built around sort of an outside perspective. When I look at a company, a lot of times I'll just sort of crawl through their website. I'll read their terms and conditions. I'm sort of like the most pain in the ass customer you could possibly imagine, but I don't have any inside information. I'm just sort of analyzing it from the outside. And I think that is a very fair lens to take, but it also, you know, sometimes I get stuff wrong. Sometimes I have founders of fintech companies who call me up afterwards and are like, hey, yeah, actually it's a little bit more this, or we hadn't updated our terms and conditions, but we've actually pivoted to this. And, you know, that's totally fair, right? And so I kind of write my newsletter a bit of an external perspective. As you said, I, I try to have some humor woven into it because I feel like, you know, financial services and as you said, bank accounts can be somewhat of a try topic or a boring topic. So I try to make it a little bit fun, try to bring a little humor and sort of pop culture references into it. But that's just sort of the style that's evolved for me. And, you know, a question that I get a lot of times is, like, how do you know which content is going to be popular or which things are people are really going to enjoy? And I have to say, the only way that I've ever figured out to like write stuff that people enjoy is to write stuff that I enjoy personally. And so I always, at the end of the day, write for my own curiosity or for my own entertainment. I write things that I think need to be written because I don't see them elsewhere in the industry. And then, you know, the magic of the internet is that other people who are looking for that same kind of content find it. And, uh, you know, it's been able to be, I think, somewhat successful just based on kind of following my own intuition in terms of what I should write about. Now, having all the information in my inbox, I find it uh, wonderful. And I think it's something that has to be elevated. And uh, you mentioned Matt Levine is perhaps the GOAT. Uh, yeah, he is. Do you aspire to, uh, to, to some personal references, just like an artist might, might look at a master yeah. in the past? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a ton of people who I'm super inspired by in the space, right? I mean, I think, um, you know, Matt Levine at Bloomberg is a really good example of one who, you know, he writes a newsletter every day and uh, his newsletters are normally, oh, I don't know, uh, 2,500, 3,000, 3,500 words a piece. And he does it every single day, which is amazing to me. And because I write, I write two newsletters a week, so I'm definitely not at his cadence. And you know, when you read his stuff, the thing that I always uh, am really impressed by is it's a combination of he obviously knows a ton about what he writes about. He's an expert in the space. He used to be an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. Like he knows what he's talking about. And it's very, very clear that he knows what he's talking about. But he also writes in a way that's really clear and that people who haven't you know, structured, you know, bond liquidity deals, they can also follow what he's writing. And he does a really good job of explaining things and he finds a way to incorporate humor into it. And I think the biggest compliment that you can give really great writers is that over time, they develop not only like a voice, but a personality that you can sort of get through their writing. You know, and nowadays, whenever I, you know, see like, oh, Elon Musk has done something crazy. Well, I know that Matt Levine's probably going to write about it. And in writing about it, I can sort of see him rolling his eyes as he's writing about it. And you know, it's just really clear to me who he is and what his voice is and what he cares about. And that's not something that you can build in a day, right? It's something that you have to build both in terms of your style and your approach over time. You have to build it in terms of consistently putting out content, which obviously he does every single day. And you, know, you have to just take your time to build up an audience. And I, I think that 
you know, one thing that is difficult in writing a newsletter is that you don't get those type of benefits day one, right? Like Matt Levine has been doing this for a long time. And you know, a lot of the other really great newsletter writers out there who I admire, they've been at it for quite some time. And that's just, a, I think, a reminder that it's good to aspire for those heights. And you, know, you might not ever reach them, but you also have to give yourself time to practice and just to build up a habit and build up an audience because it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, no, this is very inspiring what you're doing. Levine is doing as well. And I know you have a course or coaching program, which is very interesting, which we're going to probably hear more about uh, and reference as well here. It's a very personal story as well, because this podcast was the FinTech Files. And then I had another channel, which was called Inventorama and Best FinTech Oram. And our interview here is part of this process. And I think finally, I've aligned my things. I tried to dig a bit deeper into what I've been doing, which was investments, financial markets. But basically, thank you for you know what you're doing. And I think it's very important that people manage to talk about complex issues and make it a very user-friendly. On that note, I will transition straight away into the course of what we want to discuss, which is deposits. Here's a little clip that we can watch. How can I help you, young man? I got a $100 check from my grandma, and my dad said I need to put it in the bank so it can grow over the years. Well, that's fantastic. A really smart decision, young man. We can put that check in a money market mutual fund. Then we'll reinvest the earnings into foreign currency accounts with compounding interest, and it's gone. Uh, what? It's gone. It's all gone. What's all gone? The money in your account. It okay. We get the idea, and it's gone. So we're, yep. we're not there yet, but that's very much the fear of what's happening. You've written about this, so... Can you tell us a little bit your thoughts on the bailout? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the interesting thing about the bailout concept is that in this particular case, the SVB depositors, most of whom had well over $250,000, which was the FDIC insurance cap uh, in their accounts, they've all been made whole by the government, right? So that I think was a very reasonable decision on the part of the, the federal government to basically just stop any potential panic or contagion around, you know, uninsured deposits sitting in any other banks, right? They didn't want to see a flood of, you know, deposits just go from all of the community and regional banks just to like the big four banks in the US. That was something they were trying to avoid. And I think they managed to do that. I think that, you know, it's probably not really a bailout in the classic sense if you're just rescuing depositors who had nothing to do with the risks that SVB was taking. The management at SVB and the equity holders at SVB are not being rescued, right? And so it's not a bailout of them. And so, you know, when you think about concepts like moral hazard and, you know, what types of things you don't want to incentivize in the future, I think that they struck the right balance here of not, you know, having any moral hazard as it relates to banks' management teams or equity holders, right? If you manage a bank or you invest in a bank, we want you to do your job well, and we want you to not take excessive risks. And, you know, I think it's pretty clear with the benefit of hindsight that SVB's management team took a lot of risks. And I think as a result, SVB's executives should lose their jobs. I think that, you know, equity holders in SVB should suffer losses as a result of that. Like that's a type of moral hazard that we want to avoid. As it relates to depositors, though, I think it was absolutely the right thing to do to guarantee their deposits because, Fundamentally, you know, we don't want to put the mental work of evaluating a bank's balance sheet and risk taking 
on the part of individual customers, right? If you think about SVB, the customers at SVB were mostly founders of very early stage startup companies, right? And so if you think about an early stage startup, a founder is doing 25 different jobs. One of the jobs we don't want them to do is analyzing banks' balance sheets and going, yeah, you know, I think that the amount of securities they've taken on with fixed interests is going to be too high if interest rates go up and I need to diversify my account. Like that's just not a reasonable expectation on the part of small business owners or certainly consumers, right? None of us do that in our daily lives. We don't carefully analyze the balance sheets of the banks that we work with. We just sort of expect that our money is going to stay in our account, sort of opposite of the South Park example. So I don't think there was really any moral hazard or risk to rescuing depositors. I think that was the right thing to do. And as you noted, it did manage to sort of stop any sort of excessive deposit withdrawals from any of these other sort of similar regional banks. And I think that was the goal. All right. You're one of the few people who don't criticize openly the regulators. Yet one of the criticisms that people say is that, well, those founders, if you have millions, you might have as well some kind of a CFO in place or someone who's looking at finances and even charities, which I know a little bit when they have significant amounts, they typically have minimum thinking about all these things and, and diversify. And therefore, there's something about the onus being put on the depositor as well, because that could also mean that we all flock to one bank that has higher interest rates as long as it has the bank on it, and therefore believe that it will always be safe without doing any due diligence if we push it. Yeah, I think there's an interesting conversation to be had about what the right level of deposit insurance is for businesses versus individuals. I mean, candidly, I think it's a little strange that we just set it at $250,000 for everyone uh, rather than having distinct numbers for small businesses and for um, individuals. Because I think, I mean, I think the $250,000 cap is a reasonable one for individuals. Uh, and if you're over $250,000, I would hope that you maybe have multiple accounts or you have someone that you're sort of working with to help you manage your money that can, you know, sort of help you assess some of these risks. From the business perspective, I think one of the challenges and thing people don't fully appreciate is that venture-backed startups have very high amounts of capital that they raise, obviously. So they'll raise a, a seed round of $5 million, which is well over the $250,000 cap. But if you look at the company itself, it's really just like three or four people, right? Or eight people or something. It's not, it's not a full company. And so I think this is a hard thing to compare even to other types of small businesses, because you know, if you have a, a bakery with $5 million in the bank, chances are it's going to be a very large bakery with lots of employees. And one of the employees is probably a CFO or a treasurer or someone who can sort of take this on full time. Venture-backed startups aren't like that, though. They have huge amounts of capital with very small numbers of employees, and all of those employees are engineers for the most part, right? They're not CFOs. They're not treasury management folks. And you know, I've talked to founders who have said, we specifically tried to go and have like spend more time on managing our treasury to try to have multiple bank accounts, to try to find the best yield. And their investors, the VCs, told them to stop doing that. And what they told them was, look, we didn't give you this money so that you could manage it and give us a 2% return on it. We gave you this money so you could build a great company and go out and do great things with it. And so there's really no expectation on the part of these venture-backed startups that they would ever really have a CFO or do that kind of careful management. And so I think SVB is in some cases kind of a strange example in that 
venture back businesses are just very unlike most other businesses where you might expect to have a little bit more of that due diligence. And, you know, I mean, I think that, I think that's fair, right? I don't think that there should have been an expectation on the part of those small business owners, those startup founders, that they would take time away from the 19 other jobs they had to try to do that. Now, I do think one thing that's going to come out of this that's probably helpful is a lot of banks or neobanks are now launching like automated treasury management services, right? That essentially take the role of a CFO and automate it so that instead of you, the individual having to manage it, there can be a little bit more of an automated function where it sweeps money into different accounts. It keeps no more than $250,000 in your core account, blah, 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 puts money into treasuries, does other things. I think those products are a really good way to democratize the function of a CFO to these startups that otherwise wouldn't have them. So I do think long-term, we're going to have better solutions for that, but I don't think there was any particular irresponsibility on the part of startup founders this time around with SVB. And yet, there is something quite annoying, at least for me, about all the VCs, and we can name a few, right? I've got my list, which is Jason Calacanis, David Sachs, Anthony Pampliano, Balaji, about calling for a bailout and getting it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a bit of schadenfreunde, but I've seen this interesting tweet. What happened is that it looks regressive when we help the rich guys, but in fact, averting a banking crisis means everyone's better off. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I mean, I, I was annoyed over this last weekend watching all of the <laughs> VCs who were on Twitter. And to be clear, like there's sort of two groups of VCs that are the ones who weren't on Twitter because they were busy trying to help their portfolio companies. And then there were the ones who were just on Twitter, just and they wouldn't shut up no matter what we tried to do to get them to shut up. And the second group, the VCs who were on Twitter, I mean, they, they deeply annoy me, not necessarily because the actions that the Fed took on Sunday night weren't the right actions to take. Again, I think that they were. It's more just that it's a little hard to stomach their demands for the federal government to help when a lot of those VCs were the same ones who were just decrying like government regulation and, oh, we need to have crypto because crypto is a way to get around all of these centralized you know forces in our economy that are holding back you know progress and innovation like these VCs are not fans generally speaking of regulation and government intervention except when it's their money and then of course like everyone they are right and you know I think that the thing I found annoying about sort of listening to them talk was they they spent a lot of time saying well, this is what, you know, Janet Yellen at Treasury needs to do. And this is what, you know, the FDIC needs to do. And this is what you know, the Federal Reserve needs to do. And, you know, the reality is none of these VCs have spent a day working in macroeconomics, in government policy, in financial regulation. Like they have no experience doing it. They have no idea, for the most part, how financial services works. And so their sort of unearned confidence in trying to give advice to Janet Yellen, who's been working at the Federal Reserve since 1977, that I found a little bit rich. And my thing that I would have liked them to do was just, you know, maybe express support for government stepping in and then just not talk and let the government do what it was going to do, right? I mean, the FDIC has, you know, decades and decades of experience solving this exact problem. They know exactly what they're doing. They were in there that weekend working on the problem, figuring out what it was going to take to solve it. They ultimately came up with a solution that I think worked for most people. And, you know, it'd be nice just to give them the time and space to do that. And I think the other thing that is dangerous about VCs tweeting is that, you know, 
in this modern internet age where unfortunately a lot of people listen to them on Twitter, you know, you can cause bank runs by getting people to panic, right? And a lot of these banks are not in tremendously terrible financial shape, but, you know, no bank can survive if all of their depositors suddenly pull all of their money, right? There's not a single bank out there that can survive if all of the depositors ask for their money back at the same time. We sort of count on people not doing that, which is the point of FDIC insurance. You know, David Sachs and Jason Calacanis tweeting about how, you know, the economy is going to crash on Monday and, you know, we're all going to have to, you know, Mad Max style, mm -hmm. uh, start to like fight for gasoline and bullets. Like that's just not helpful for yes. anyone. And that level of panic is just going to cause more problems. It's, it's totally irresponsible. And so that to me was the biggest problem. Right. What we will stop talking about is they don't deserve it. We will they give don't. credit, I think, to <laughs> exactly the regulators. I know if I had to press the save button and then I saw those tweets, I might think, you know what, <laughs> I'm not going to do it, but they did it. I think it's the right thing to do. And yeah. now we're going to go into something where I think we looked into all that, how the details matter, how 250,000, not something that you might always be aware in terms of small print, etc. how bailout is probably the right, wrong term. And I want to go into a really practical approach and look at proper savings or bank accounts and try to, to discern, you know, the differences. And as a quick transition, again, I'm going to put something which is completely irrelevant, but is inspired by your own newsletter, a newsletter about the multiverse of bank accounts, Marvel studio, Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness. Maybe it is appropriate. I did what I had to do to protect our world. You cannot control that. Well, I hadn't heard about it, but it's quite interesting to say I did what I had to do to protect our world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it's the multiverse. It's all happening. I like to talk about how products are presented and marketed and the differences for us as investors and savers. You know, how do you see the fundamental difference between a bank account, which is perhaps just for utility, a savings account and then an investment account. Is there a fundamental difference or, or how do we differentiate it? Yeah, I mean, I think that the way I tend to define it is based on their jobs to be done, right? And so I think that generally speaking, there are a couple of different kind of core jobs to be done with these types of accounts. And a bank account, a checking account, you know, its, it's job to be done is to provide a safe place for your money that's easily accessible. Right. And so if you put money in a checking account, you don't really have any expectation that you're going to generate a lot of money from the money that's in your checking account. You're not looking for yield, but you do count on the fact that the money will be there tomorrow, which as we've seen with SVB, like that's a scary thing when it doesn't look like the money's going to be there tomorrow. So the money has to be there tomorrow because you know, you'd be paying payroll if you're a business, you're going to be paying your rent if you're a consumer, whatever. So the money needs to be in the account. And it needs to be accessible. And so, you know, you need to have the ability to access it, whether it's checks, deposit accounts, ACH, wires, P2P payments, whatever. You need to have ways to access it that are convenient and that work most of the time, right? So that's the job of a, a checking account. A savings account, I think, is similar to a checking account in that the expectation is that it's safe. And so, again, a savings account, you don't want it to have a situation where the money might disappear or just go down to zero uh, over the weekend, that's not an acceptable outcome for a savings account. 
However, with a savings account, you are essentially trading some level of convenience in terms of the access you can get for the money to get a yield, to get some return on it. And obviously, savings accounts are uh, somewhat a function of the, uh, the rate environment that we're in. And so when it's a low rate environment, your expectation of getting safe yield on savings is relatively low. You might only get half a percent or less on your save in a high rate environment, you're going to expect that, you know, you're going to get quite a bit more yield while still having that safety associated with the account. So it does vary a little bit, but to me, that's sort of the core definition of a savings account is it's a safe place to generate yield. It's slightly less accessible or convenient to use than a checking account. And then investment accounts are very much on the other end of the continuum, which is to say uh, they are also maybe less accessible, maybe not quite as like sort of transactional in nature like a checking account is. They generate yield like a savings account, but the trade-off you're making there is you are generating potentially even more return depending on how you're invested, but you're generally making sort of a above market return and you are taking risk and you know that you're taking risk and there is an opportunity or a chance for your money to go down or potentially to go to zero, uh, depending on how you invest, that's either more or less likely. But you know, to me, we're basically sliding along the scale of accessibility, safety, and yield. And as you move from one end of the continuum to the other end of the continuum, you're making trade-offs there. Now, in the old days, these products were very distinct from each other, right? And so you'd have a brokerage account at Schwab, you'd have a savings account with uh, a large bank, uh, maybe you'd have a CD or something that would also sort of be another way of safely generating yield, but also less accessible. And then you'd have a checking account at you know your local bank or credit union or wherever. And none of those products really had any characteristics in common. They were all very distinct products. The thing that's been interesting about fintech over the last 10 years is that we've essentially taken all of the building blocks of all of those different products and we've sort of turned them into little Lego bricks that we can combine together in different ways. And so a thing I've noticed is we've started to combine different elements of those different products together. And so we've created, for example, sort of hybrid checking and savings accounts where you can have one account and it's accessible, but within that account, you can designate little pockets of savings that are a little bit more sort of automated, or you know, we'll have a checking account that automatically sweeps any remainder from a purchase that you make. So you know, if something you're buying is $1.70, it'll round up that remaining 30 cents and it'll sweep it into an investment account. So we get these sort of hybrid products. And I think for the most part, those hybrid products are good in that they allow consumers to sort of rake in more of the benefits of all of these different products along that continuum in a more convenient package. So I think they're generally speaking a good thing. There are, however, concerns when the folks who are building those products build them in ways that sort of compromise some of the core principles of those different product types, right? So for example, a thing that I've been very critical of in my newsletter over the last couple of years is the appearance of these sort of savings-like products in fintech and particularly in crypto that are presented as savings accounts and are compared to savings accounts. So they'll say, hey, you know, you earn 8% uh, yield on your deposits or on your savings in this account. Compare that to you know, 0.5% from Chase. And that's a bad comparison because under the surface, that account is not FDIC insured. There's no protection for your investment. And the way they're generating that 8% return that they're giving you 
is by loaning your cryptocurrency to crypto investment funds that are out taking very risky bets on cryptocurrency tokens. And as we saw with Celsius and with a number of other products that were sort of built on this constraint, BlockFi, Voyager, things like that, those were not actually very safe products at all. They weren't savings accounts. They were, in fact, very, very risky investment accounts, but they were presented in a way that made them sort of look equivalent to savings accounts. And so I think the the challenge as we sort of blend all of these different product categories together is how do we get the benefits of doing that while making it crystal clear to customers what risks they're actually taking and what the products are actually doing behind the scenes? Because if you obscure that, you can definitely generate lots of interest from consumers because everyone likes to get return, especially if it looks like it's safe. But as we've seen from the fallout of like crypto as an example, a lot of those customers end up feeling really burned by those products because what was happening under the scenes was actually very risky and it just didn't appear that way. So that's the concern. Indeed, indeed. And I think that's absolutely the challenge that is critical to tackle for investors these days because there's so much more opportunities, so much more asset class, etc. Yeah. Some of them are not as uh, regulated in their marketing as other products just because they are alternative. And we've learned with crypto the hard way. I've learned it myself and I, I feel so foolish about it. But the typical example, yes, Celsius, 18% and really, really marketed as a savings. For so many years, we lived in a world where none of this was a reality or we forgot about what happened 15 years ago. So it's so powerful for marketers because there's not like a, an incident that's just behind us. And yeah, would you say mis-selling is critical consideration? I think that's right. I mean, I think to your point, I think it's a really good point that we haven't had a lot of like big bank failures, right? We're up until SVB. And so we've been living in this age where I think that consumers and business owners sort of just took for granted that putting their money in things that looked like banks was always going to be safe, right? So like in a way you could say the FDIC did its job too well and we've sort of gotten people really used to the idea that like banks can't fail, your money's always safe. And I think consumers started to sort of generalize the idea of safety to things that were not safe, right? And um, I think that a lot of uh, those companies from a marketing perspective sort of took advantage of that, right? And so they would say things like, oh yeah, you know, we're FDIC insured when really they weren't or they were, but in a way that was not exactly as safe as the consumer might've assumed. Or, you know, sometimes they would say, oh, well, we have, you know, insurance, but it's not FDIC insurance, but it is insured, or we are regulated in some way. And they would sort of just paint on the veneer of regulation to give people a sense of safety about these products, right? I also know for a fact there were, you know, crypto companies that were having discussions internally about like, well, what's the right amount of return for customers? Should it be 3%, 5%, 8%, 10%? And actually like making decisions to make that percentage lower so the consumers would feel like it was safer because you know who can get 12% safely? No one. But if we say it's 3%, then they'll believe us, right? Well, that's not a very good thing to do. That's deceptive because the 3% is just as risky as the 12%. You're just making them feel like it's less risky. And I think that it's that type of, sort of overly clever mark that is where we got ourselves into a lot of trouble as an industry. And I think that's what regulators are going to crack down on is that, you know, you have to be just really, really clear with consumers, you know, is this account FDIC insured? What does that mean? 
what would happen in the event that we, the fintech company or the crypto company went out of business? How would you get your money back? Like, you're just going to need to be much more clear with consumers about how all of that works. And I think that in a way, what's going on with SVB and Credit Suisse and all of these other companies now is a good wake up call to the fact that uh, things can go wrong and that you should be responsible enough to explain to consumers exactly sort of what happens in that worst case scenario, because we hadn't had that scenario for a while. And I think we all got used to that. My previous guest was Edward Chancellor, who wrote a book about interest rates, the price of time and big possibilities that we're in the everything bubble and there's a lot to come. But what I would like to do right now with you is to put into practice what we discussed about this marketing, have a look at a few products. And I think some of them are pretty obviously bad. Some of them are pretty obviously safe. I mean, I have a mm -hmm. NatWest bank account, which pays 6%. Well, I haven't read the full small print, but it's a d dangerously close to what uh, Credit Suisse pays, but maybe I should basically read the small print. But those are, I think, pretty good examples. Now, what I would definitely put in a different category is this TELUS, and they have a, a really striking catchphrase, turn your saving into passive income, which if savings are something else, uh, well, <laughs> I don't know what it is. And it's quite amazing that they pay, well, just about 6% when Fed rates are about 5%, and you invest yeah. in real estate. Yeah. What I, we're not going to go into too many details, but they clearly talk about savings, right? It's your savings powered by real estate. Would you put that into properly marketed? Yeah, I would say this is a good example of one that is overly risky and not marketed appropriately. You know, and I, I've written about Telus before, but yeah, the idea here is basically that they take your deposits and then they invest it in sort of non-conforming jumbo mortgage loans in California. The sort of safety that they sort of argue about here is on the website that, you know, you can take your money out at any time. They've never failed to honor a withdrawal request from a customer. And none of the loans that they've written, the jumbo mortgage loans in California, have ever defaulted, right? I think the uh, challenge with these kind of ones is that if a bank or a fintech company is telling you, We've never, ever had a problem honoring a withdrawal request. That's a red flag, right? Like, like banks don't it brag about flag. that if they never have like had a problem. Like if you're really good at it, you don't even just, you just don't even say it. You don't even have to like mention, oh, we've never, we've never had a problem. Like when was the last time your bank was like, oh yeah, we're totally safe. And like, you totally wouldn't have a problem if you came and tried to get your deposits from us, right? Like as soon as you say that, you're already tripping red flags. Same thing on the lending side, right? Like your bank never goes to you and says, all the mortgages that we write with the deposits that you give us, none of them have ever been bad, right? And like a, a bank that's experienced at lending, they've actually had mortgages gone bad, right? Like I almost want to hear a bank say, yeah, you know, we've been around for a long time. Sure. We've had mortgages gone bad. We've had credit cards that we've written uh, go bad. Like we, we've had experience lending good and bad that makes us really good. In Telus's case, they haven't actually written that many mortgages, right? They're still very new to this. And so the fact that they have had zero defaults on their mortgages, that actually is a red flag to me, not a sign of comfort. And to your point, the challenge here is that they're sort of trying to present this as savings. They're comparing it to a savings account, but it's also very clearly not a savings account. It's not actually that much more competitive than a savings account, right? You can get yeah, this is four and a half percent from your bank. Yeah, I mean, like this was a proposition that I think worked better in a low rate environment than it now does in a high rate environment. Because you can get the same percentage rate, roughly speaking, from a bank with FDIC insurance that's totally safe. 
I would prefer to do that than this. And I, I think this is probably much closer to a unlicensed security product than it is to anything else. I mean, this is basically an investment product that's unregistered and that would not give me a tremendous amount of confidence as a, as a consumer trying to turn my savings into passive income. Yeah, I think this, is, this was a pretty clear one. Let's go to another yep. one, which to be honest, I've looked in. I, I think it's, well, I think it's a different category, but let, let's discuss it. So it's about public and I know you mentioned it as well. And if we just uh, introduce public, it feels very much that they're going with hype. They have an event with Kathy Wood, et cetera. It's about investing in crypto, alternative assets, blah, 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 investing in everything. So that's kind of a sets, you know, sets the tone yet. And I believe this product of theirs must be very successful. They have launched a product, which is earn a 4.7 yield by investing in treasuries. And it's a really interesting proposition. And what's also interesting in terms of how it works is that you sign up and then you have to uh, create an account, etc., which I think is a very good customer acquisition tool on there for them. Yeah. Um, what I was interested in saying there is, is that, again, the, the pitch is the same. It's super secure. It's access your fund, backing of the U.S. government, which is something we can discuss. But I wanted to look at the small print review. It's, it's actual U.S. treasuries. And I think that's yep. where it says, that's why you can say, okay, it is backed by the U.S. government. How do we see it as a saver slash investor, first of all? And is it in our savings and is it, or is it an investment? Yeah, this is a really interesting example. Uh, maybe the most interesting of blending these different things together, right? So um, mm. I think that technically speaking, technically, this is an investment product, right? And that makes sense because public is mostly an investing platform, right? You invest in stocks, you invest in ETFs, you invest in alternative assets like crypto or art or whatever. So public is uh, an investing platform like Robinhood or any of the other ones out there. So this being an investment product makes sense. It is not, technically speaking, I don't believe FDIC insured because it's not a bank account. It's protected by SIPC, which is sort of the investor equivalent of protection. It doesn't protect you against losses. It just protects you against sort of like theft or fraud or those kind of things. So I think that on the one hand, it's definitely clearly an investment product and sits on that sort of side of the continuum. However, I think the thing that's interesting about this and why public uh, launched it and why I think it's kind of interesting is you're investing in treasuries, right? And as you said, this is actually a product where you are investing in treasury bills. Um, and treasuries are, again, while technically an investment product, they're basically the safest investment possible, right? And so from a, if I was to evaluate it from a safety perspective, like, will my money be there is kind of the question you're asking. I think this one is pretty clearly yes, right? Like this isn't tell us, writing loans on mortgages in California and just hoping for the best. Like these are treasury bills. They're going to be there. The question is, how do you make these treasury bills sort of liquid and easy to buy, right? And if you've ever tried to buy treasury bills as an individual consumer, I can tell you it's not easy, right? Like buying a treasury bill is really hard. I actually talked about this with someone on my podcast recently. It's surprisingly tricky to buy a treasury bill. You wouldn't think it would be, but it kind of is. And so you know, the fact that um, through its partnership with GECO, public is making it easier for individuals to buy treasury bills. I think that's a really interesting example of blending together investing, but in a way that actually does sort of function mostly like a savings account, right? The money is going to be there. It's not terribly accessible. And I think the restriction, if I read the terms and conditions on this right, is 
much like a treasury bill, if you decide to take your money out of this treasury account before the duration of the treasury bill is over, before the end of the term, so if it's you know a five-year treasury bill or whatever, if you take it out before then, you just don't generate the full yield on it, right? And so you get your money back, but you don't get potential yield on the treasury bill as a result of that. So it's kind of, if you were to compare it to sort of traditional bank savings products, it's a little bit more like a CD, right? In the sense that it's time-based, you have to keep your money in to get the full return on it, but it is accessible if you need the money before and the money is safe. And so I think this is a really good example of one that they've done a really careful job of trying to generate more yield through investing directly in treasury bills, but doing it in a way that's as safe and sort of boring, quite frankly, for consumers as it's possible to be. And I think that's a very nice complement to the more sort of risk on investment products that they also offer through public like stocks and crypto and other things where you would expect a little bit more volatility. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this, uh, there's definitely, I think they, they invest in short-term treasury bills. So there's yeah. a minimum mark to market as well. I expect that you, you, you cannot get your hundreds at any time if you close it before the end of the term of the product. But there's also right. something that may, that still worries me a little bit. What if public is not around anymore? Yeah. And it might be about this story of the FDIC and SIPC. You mentioned it, but they're really a different kind of insurance, right? They are. Yep, they are. And and I think that, again, you can't have FDIC insurance on something that's not a bank account, right? And this is clearly not a bank account. I think their explanation makes sense. I think your question, though, is a really good one. And it's one that we're asking kind of broadly across the industry, which is, what happens if this entity just disappears, right? Like, what, like if in the worst case scenario where public disappears, or like to use a neobanking example, like Chime disappears or whatever, like when any one of these intermediary companies that's sitting between me and the account where my money actually is. So in this case, it's Bank of New York Mellon. Uh, in the case of Chime, it's uh, one of their partner banks like Stride. But like at the end of the day, where's my money sitting and how is it protected? That I think is a really important question. And really what it comes down to, and, and I don't think this is something that a lot of people appreciate, but it basically comes down to the system that the fintech company, Public or Chime or whatever, is using to keep track of all of their accounts. Right. And so, you know, using SVB as an example, when a bank gets into trouble and, you know, regulators step in and they come in to look at all of the accounts, basically what they want to do is they want to make sure all of the end customers get their money back, whether it's treasury bills that they're invested in or an FDIC insured bank account. They want to make sure that people get their money back. The trick is, are they able to figure out? who the end customers are and who the account holders are. And if it's you working with a bank directly, that's easy, right? Because the bank has a record of all of their customers and then they're fine. If it's a fintech company that you're working with that has bank partners in the background, then from the bank's perspective, the end customer is the fintech company. And the only way for regulators or for that bank to know who that fintech company's end customers are is if the fintech company is keeping really good track of all of their customers in their own ledger, right? And so this is sort of the unseen risk, I think, that consumers may be taking or investors may be taking when they work with some of these fintech platforms is in the absolute worst case where something goes wrong, you really want to make sure that that company is keeping careful track so that if they were to go out of business, the partners they work with 
can sort of track down all the end customers and make sure that they get their money back. So I'm not as concerned in this particular case about FDIC insurance or uh, SIPC. I think that's just a function of what kind of account it is under the surface. I think the bigger question is, you know, how sort of well set up are these fintech companies to deal with the worst case scenario where they just go out of business? And, you know, to be candid, a lot of like less mature fintech companies, I don't have this concern about Chime. I don't have this concern about public. I think they have pretty well established processes for this. But you do see less mature fintech companies that sort of have this assumption like, oh, we're never going to go out of business. So like, why do we even need to worry about that? Why do we need to do contingency planning or sort of worst case, like living will type stuff that banks think a lot about? We don't ever need to do that. And in those companies, you do sometimes worry about if the worst was to happen, how do people untangle it in that scenario? And not every company is going to be great at that. So that's an area where I think regulators are going to need to take a closer look and just make sure that everyone is doing the right things in that particular space. Yeah, thank you. Just to conclude, and I'm going to put myself in the perspective of the investors, I think that, well, first of all, that it's great that there's this merging of the different types of products just because it's more practical. I don't necessarily want to jump from one account to another. And that yep. now that the interest rates are 5%, something like that, right, around the UK, US, Europe, there's really an opportunity for yields. And while bank accounts are still very low, Therefore, I see this kind of product as an opportunity, also as an opportunity of fintech to, you know, my margin is your opportunity if you don't offer 5% or something like that to mm -hmm. your customers. Well, I will pitch my products and with the very low margin and it makes sense. I do think, however, that all those opportunities, as always, there's a, a lot of dangers and it means the small prints matter so much. And that means as well that while probably regulation is catching up, education, doing your own research, etc., is so much important. And well, that's a little bit what I'm trying to do on this podcast. And I'd like to conclude by thanking you so much as well for sharing your insights, going through all this into details with us. And yeah, just let us know, please, uh, where we can find and follow you and your work. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. You can find me individually on uh, Twitter, where I spend way too much time yelling at VCs. Uh, <laughs> and that's uh, Alex H underscore Johnson on Twitter. And then uh, on LinkedIn as well, you can just Alex H Johnson Fintech Takes uh, at, on LinkedIn. And then if you just Google uh, Fintech Takes, uh, you'll find the newsletter and the podcast and uh, would love to have folks subscribe to that as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We'll also put all those links in the show notes of the podcast. Thank you so much, Alex. And you know, we'll look forward to reading your next pieces. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Investorama, your guide to the future of investing without the hype. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate it on your favorite podcast app.